Sunday in our Supporting Actors sermon series comes to us from the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. This is a little bit longer than I would normally like to read, but I want you to hear this full story. So, listen now for God's word to you. This happened in the days of of Ahasuerus, the same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in the citadel of Susa, both great and small, a banquet lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and blue hangings tied with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl and colored stones. Drinks were served in golden, tab- golden goblets, goblets of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was by flagons without restraints, for the, the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each one desired. Furthermore, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the palace of King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who attended to him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing the royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty, for she was fair to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. At this, the king was enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king consulted with the sages who knew the laws, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and custom. And those next to him were uh, Karshena, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mechumen, the seven officials of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king, and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus conveyed by the eunuchs? Then he said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, but also to all of the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will rebel against the king's officials, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out, from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that this may not be altered, that Queen Vashti is never to again come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give royal position to another who is better than she. 
So when the decree was made by the king is proclaimed throughout his kingdom, vast as it is, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Oh boy, yeah, that's right. There were a lot of characters in that story, weren't there, with lots of fun to pronounce names? So which one is our nominee for our final supporting actor? Queen Vashti. Vashti is the final person in this Supporting Actors sermon series. And I'm guessing probably most of you have not heard of Queen Vashti before. She probably did not show up in your Sunday school class as she did not show up in mine. Uh, But her story takes place in the prologue to the well-beloved book of Esther. But before we get to Esther, we have Queen Vashti. And Vashti is one of the wives of King Ahasuerus, who is the emperor of the Persian Empire. He rules over this vast territory, 127 provinces, from what we know today as Ethiopia and Africa, all the way to India in Asia. And in the third year of his reign, he decides he wants to show off all of his wealth, all of his prestige, everything he has to wow and dazzle his officials. He decides to throw a little party for them. And on the guest list for this party, he invites all of the governors, all of the royal officials, the generals, the ranking officers in his army, anybody who is important in his empire is invited to this party. And really calling it a party is a little bit misleading It's a party that lasts 180 days. I'm not great at math, but that's six months. For six months, all of these important people in King Ahasuerus' empire gather and they gorge themselves. They drink themselves silly as as they party and celebrate. They ooh and ah at all of the wealth that King Ahasuerus has. They sit there. Did you catch it? They sit beneath the cotton linens that come off the marble pillars. They They sit on couches of gold and silver on pathways made with with precious stones. This happens for six months. And at the end of the six months, King Ahasuerus has not had enough, and so he decides to invite everybody from his capital city to come in and to join in the party, to join in this little soiree, right? And so they all come in high ranking people and low-ranking people alike, and the king issues a command, a decree, that everyone is to drink to excess, to not hold back. 180 days of this. One has to wonder what's happening in the rest of the empire as all of these people are supposed to be running the empire are partying and celebrating. Gives a whole new meaning to government shutdown, doesn't it? So this goes on for six months, and by the end of the the six months, uh, King Ahasuerus decides he hasn't quite shown off everything he has, everything he possesses. And so he makes uh, a decision I think is a, a particularly grotesque one. He says to the eunuchs who attend to the queen, he says, go back and tell her to come out in front of all of my friends wearing the royal crown. He wants to display Queen Vashti to all of his drunken buddies on this six-month bender. And Anna Carter Florence says that he is asking Queen Vashti to come out in the royal crown and only the royal crown. 
He's wanting to show her off, to display his wealth. He is, in a, in a sense, saying to his officials, look what I have that you can't have. Because nobody got to look at the queen's wife, especially not in those circumstances. The people who got to attend to the queen were the other women of the royal court and in the eunuchs because they posed no threat to the royal line. But he is bringing her out to parade her and to make a spectacle of her. It's a disgusting display, isn't it? And so the eunuchs go back to convey the king's command to Vashti. And keep in mind here, there's a huge power discrepancy. The king issues a commandment. It has to be followed. It might as well be a word from God's mouth. The eunuchs relay this command to Vashti. And what does Vashti say? No. She says no to the king. And King Ahasuerus is, understandably and predictably, enraged. Nobody says no to the king. She has embarrassed the king in front of every important person in his empire. And that little small no, that little two-letter response, brings that little party to a screeching halt. All of these powerful men who think that they have power suddenly are filled with anxiety. It's almost like a record skip at a club, right? Everything stops. And what once was a party now becomes a late-night legislative session. The king's cabinet gathers together, and you can kind of imagine them. Their, their faces pale with anxiety, the sweat on their brows, sipping coffee to try to sober up after a six-month bender. And they gather around the king and they ask the question, what is to be done about Queen Vashti because she de denied the king's command? What should we do about her? And that's when one of the officials speaks up. And he says, what Queen Vashti did to King Ahasuerus, she did to every single man in the empire, to every single one of us. And he's not trying to score political points with his boss. He and every other man in that room is terrified of what Queen Vashti's defiance means for them and their own households. They're worried that this, the story of her no will spread like wildfire across all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire from India to Ethiopia, and there will be no end to the defiance of the women in their households. How fragile is the power of these men, right? These men who led, get this late-night legislative session to control the women of their empire because she says no. And so they say, let's issue a decree, a law, that Queen Vashti is to be made an example of. She's to be removed from the royal court. She's to no longer be queen. Let her never again come before King Ahasuerus. And it happens just as they command it. Queen Vashti is removed from the royal court, and a new position opens up. And this begins the story of Queen Esther, that well-loved story I'm sure that you heard in Sunday school. But before we get to Queen Esther, we have Queen Vashti. We have this story that I think is one of the most important untold stories anywhere in the Bible. And we don't talk about it a whole lot, probably for a lot of reasons. I think one of the big reasons why we haven't talked about it historically in the church 
is that the church has existed within its own patriarchal societies and has buttressed up patriarchy. And the story of a woman who in open defiance to male authority has not always sat right in the church. That's our unfortunate legacy and one of the reasons why I think Vashti's story is important for us to recover. But I think the other reason why we don't talk so much about Vashti's story is we don't talk a whole lot about the importance, the spirituality, the goodness of saying no. That we talk a lot about the importance of saying yes, that we're supposed to say yes to God, right? Supposed to say yes to the nominating committee when they come asking. We're supposed to be like the disciples who, when Jesus says, come follow me, we drop our nets and we go follow him. We have these stories of people who say no to God who face consequences. Think of that other Sunday school story, the story of Jonah. God says, go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, no way, God, and runs away to Tarshish, only to end up in the belly of a whale or a great fish or a giant fish, depending on how literal you want to take it, right? That's that's some seminary lunchroom humor for you. Um, Or Moses, who when God says, go and be my representative to speak for the Hebrew slaves, says, are you sure, God? I'm not really great at speaking in front of people. And, And God sort of reads him the riot act. That we're not really good at saying no. We struggle saying no. No is a hard thing to say. And it continues on even into the present day. That when the nominating committee comes calling, it says, you know, we, our group decided that you would be really good at this role. We get nervous. We don't maybe have, feel like we have time for it. We don't feel like it's our calling. Maybe the nominating committee heard God wrong. And so we say, let me think about it. But we all know what the answer is. And we say no, but then we feel guilty about it. Or um, I heard a, a story about a, a young girl whose long-term relationship had just ended and, and her friends desperately wanted her to get back out there to start dating again, so they helped her and they kind of forced her to sign up for a dating website and she really didn't want to be on the dating website. It's not because she didn't want to date, it's not because she didn't think anybody would be interested in her, but because she was afraid that somebody would be interested in her and she just wouldn't know how to say, no, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, she said. Or a, a young man whose friends want to go out to, for a night at an expensive restaurant and to maybe have a little bit of a fraction of King Ahasuerus's party, not quite the six-month bender, but maybe a little bit of it, an echo of it. But he's not really financially able to do that right now. He's got bills, he's got debts he's got to pay off, and, and he wants to say no, but he doesn't want to make his friends angry with him. Or you have a, a job that you depend on that you got to where you are by working hard, by showing up on time, by doing what's asked of you. But your boss likes to pile tasks on your your desk, comes to you over and over again, and, and you can't say no because you're afraid of what will happen. You're afraid that that you might be the next one to get the pink slip if you say no. Or we have problems with authority, right? We have an unhealthy relationship with authority. We have a hard time saying no to those who have, are in positions of power above us. Or I think about the, the young kid coming home from college 
And college is all about discovering who you are apart from your family of origin, and you gain these new understandings of yourself. But, but when you come home, your family knows you in a certain way, and so they want to always put you back into that position that you were before you left, but that might not be who you understand yourself to be anymore. And it's hard to disappoint people, and so you have a hard time saying, no, that's not who I am. That's not who I understand myself to be anymore. Or maybe we're people pleasers. And the idea of saying no to somebody causes a knot to turn in our stomachs, right? Or maybe we're just simply good Midwesterners. And saying no is impolite. There's a, there's a page I follow on social media called Midwest versus Everybody. And this is what they posted on their Twitter. This is how Midwesterners say yes and no. No, yeah, means yes. Yeah, no means no. Yeah, no for sure is definitely. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm sorry, but unfortunately the answer is yes. No, yeah, no. Oh, no, you've got nothing to worry about. In the Midwest, even our no's contain a yes because it is hard for us to say no. And I understand why it's hard for us to say no. I I have a hard time saying no sometimes, too. And we have a hard time saying no because when we say yes, we have this way of protecting ourselves, of sort of alleviating the anxiety that can be present in our lives. That when we say yes to our boss, even though we are overwhelmed with tasks, we can sort of alleviate that anxiety of worrying about keeping our jobs. When we always say yes to somebody, we can ensure that no one is ever upset with us. When we say yes to the, the nominating committee, even though we're not ready, we can, we can make sure that the church is, is happy with us. It's, it's easy to say yes because it protects us. But there's a, a trade-off here, as there are with most things, that by always saying yes and never setting no, never setting a boundary around ourselves, we are the ones who end up always sacrificing ourselves for other people. We end up sacrificing our own good, our own well-being, our own health for the sake of somebody else. That at work, when we always say yes to tasks being piled on our desk, we are the ones who end up exhausted, weary, and worn out. When we cannot say no to somebody who we're not that interested in dating, we're the ones who might end up in an unhealthy relationship. When we can't say no to the nominating committee, the church starts to lose its its meaning for us. It has the potential to lose its meaning for us. That we are the ones who sacrifice ourselves when we can't set that boundary. And and maybe this gives Queen Vashti's story a little bit more power, a little bit more understanding. That when she says no to King Ahasuerus, she's saying yes to herself. She says, no, King Ahasuerus, I will not dehumanize, demean myself for you and your drunken buddies on a six-month bender. My dignity, my well-being, my status as a beloved child of God is worth more than that. I think that our no's can often contain a hidden yes to ourselves and to who God made us to be. Yes, we are to say yes to God sometimes. But that yes, I think, is only possible as we have that dignity and that well-being within ourselves, as we attend to that. We're learning all about the the word no in my house these days. Um, 
from uh, sweet Nora, who's almost two years old, if you can believe that. Um, God help me. Uh, God help me for when she turns three, though. Three is, is worse. Um, I, they call them the terrible, huh? So is 13. Well, they call them three-nagers. Um, there's the terrible twos, but it's nothing compared to three-nagers, right? It, it's no to everything right now. It's it's no to, uh, to getting into the bathtub. It's, it's no to the banana that we insisted that mom and dad peel for a snack, but now I don't want it. It's, it's, it's no to, uh, to everything right now. No, I don't want to wear those, those snow boots on a snowy day. I want to wear my sandals for the, that I normally wear in the summertime. It's no, no, no. And every child goes through this, and every parent grins and bears it. Uh, But what I'm starting to learn is that this no phase is one of the most important in a child's development because what she's learning is that she's not simply an extension of Heather and I, but that she's her own person, that she's her own individual, and she's learning how to assert that for herself. And part of being a parent is learning the context of those no's, that sometimes I can't abide by a no. No, you can't go play in traffic. But sometimes it's learning that her no is just her asserting her own dignity, her own humanity, putting a a sort of boundary around her own personhood. No, I don't want to wear those clothes, Mom, because she's a real fashionista. Um, She loves clothes and shoes. Um, No, I don't want to wear that. I want to wear something else. Maybe all of those wonderful two- and three-year-olds have something to tell us about the depth of power in Vashti's story. That somewhere along the line, we, we lose the ability to say no, or many of us lose the ability to say no in our lives because of the messages we've received, the, the ways we've been socialized. But really, no is just a way for us to assert our own dignity, our own humanity. This is what Queen Vashti does in the story. That really, our, our no's, I think, contain or can contain a hidden yes. That when we say no to a boss who is piling work on our desk, it's really a yes to our own well-being, our own need for self-care. The way we can say no to somebody who wants to continue to put us into a place that we no longer understand ourselves to be, we are saying yes to the understanding of the image of God that dwells within us. When we can say no, sometimes it contains a yes. We can say no to Oppression and injustice, it's really a yes to human dignity and to justice. That I think sometimes our no's are simply a yes to God, a yes to who God made us to be, a yes to protecting that sacred image that dwells within each and every one of us. I think that's what Queen Vashti says to King Ahasuerus, no but yes to myself, yes to the image of God that dwells within me, yes to my lovability, my own dignity. Thanks be to God. Amen.